0: All right, this is, Lord willing, going to be my last installment of our series on sexual purity. And uh, I want to begin, partly for time, I have more material than I'm going to be able to get through, so I'm going to try to compact this a little bit. Instead of reading all of Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, which is basically Paul's summary, in which he says, both Jews and Greeks, all mankind are under sin, and he ends with verse 18 where he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's already said, there's none righteous, no not one. And he says, the problem is, we don't have a fear of God before our eyes. And that's what I want to focus on today. The title of this is, Before Our Eyes. And in Proverbs 30, verse 12, it says, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, and yet is not washed from its filthiness. And Job, in his despondent prayer, asked in Job 14, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. And so as we search for purity, our quest will be in vain unless we find the Holy One. This brings us back to the Gospel. This brings us back to God. That is our only real hope. And so as I speak to you as parents and you're concerned about the purity of your children, or I'm speaking to you personally about your own sexual purity, ultimately, the only real answer is the work of God in our hearts. And that is a work. It's not instantaneous. It will be an ongoing work. Lessons on sexual purity on internet filters, on accountability partners, and so forth, can only help, and they do help, but they can only help if they are assisting hearts that are turned away, uh, excuse me, are turned toward God. If your home is not being led in a distinctively Christian way, with a full-orb commitment to Christ, then I have to tell you, that you are at great risk of losing some of your children to the world, to the flesh, and or the devil, or all three. And so this morning, I want to focus our attention on one critical aspect of the whole matter of sexual purity. It can be summed up by asking this question. What is before your eyes? What is before your eyes? There is something before your eyes. That is an inescapable concept. This is critical because you are going to become like whatever is before your eyes. What is the ultimate object of your desire? That is your God. And that could be uppercase or lowercase g, depending on what the answer is. And so you either have the one true God before your eyes, which will lead to a certain response in your life, or you have an idol before your eyes, and that false God is going to elicit a different kind of response and fruit in your life. Think about the first temptation. The first temptation to sin came by way of the eyes. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. John Bunyan, one of history's greatest Christian authors, wrote a story about a fierce battle to take control of a city from its rightful ruler. Now, you're most of us familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, but the other great allegory that he wrote was called the Holy War. His depiction of the human soul is a city called Mansoul, which has five gates, ear gate, eye gate, nose gate, field gate, and mouth gate. The enemy of the city is Diabolus, which, of course, is the devil, who comes on a daily basis to attack at one or more of the five gates. Bunyan writes, then lend thine ear to what I do relate, touching the town of Mansoul and her state, how she was lost, took captive, made a slave. Similarly, the Apostle Paul writes, and do not present your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members... As instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, your body is going to be used for something. To serve someone. To serve your God. Each of these gates into your soul offers, offers their own vulnerabilities. But today I want to focus on the eye gate. Unquestionably, you can't be holy or a holy or pure child of God. While your eyes are feasting on unholy scenes. If you choose to watch sin on the big screen, whatever is in the theater or your fa- whether it's in the theater or your family room, then you have just opened the eye gate and invited Diabolus to come in. Parrots, who's watching the gate at your house? If the obelisk can't get in through one gate, he'll try another. So, what are the lyrics to your favorite song? So when Job says that he made a covenant with his eyes not to look upon a woman lustfully, this is the scriptures telling us that this is one of the ways that we are to go about making a plan and having an understanding of what we need to do. This is a matter of learning to believe. And to trust and obey God. Likewise, as the scriptures direct us to think about pure things, our thought life is is critical in terms of the fruit that our lives are going to bear. Again, here's why the mind is able to conjure up images, the mind's eye sees things. So it's another way of making use of the eyes, is with. The imaginations of an impure heart. What we think about makes a difference. The Bible clearly tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, so we see. Another way of saying, whatever images are before you, that's what you're going to become like. Even King David, who was a man after God's own heart, put himself in a position on the roof of his house so that he could look over at his next-door neighbor's house... And just happened to see Bathsheba taking a bath. And we know the rest of the story. It says, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold, to see. So the eyes of a man, Proverbs 27 20 says, the eyes of a man are never satisfied. And Jesus clearly ties the problem of sexual impurity to our eyes. You have heard it said of old, he said, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman the lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is better, it is more profitable that one of your members perish than for your. Your whole body to be cast into hell. So we can't possibly be looking at God uh, and lusting with our eyes at the same time. First John John writes: Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God, abides forever. Now, back to our opening text. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The first step toward purity is to catch a vision of the true God. To to catch a vision of Him in all of His majestic Holiness, or purity. Without this vision, you will perish. We are called to be holy, even as he is holy. Without holiness, the Bible says, no one will see God. And so I ask you, are you a God-fearing person? Both knowledge and wisdom begin with the fear of God. we read that in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's our starting place. Psalm 3119, how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. And so what happened when the prophet Isaiah saw Jehovah? His reaction was like others in the Bible who had a similar encounter. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And he sees the holiness of God, the purity of God, by comparison, he's immediately drawn to recognize how sinful and how impure he is. He says, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so to have God before our eyes not only causes us to see his holiness, it also causes us to see our uncleanness, and it leads us to fear him. We see God in his word. That's where he reveals himself, one of the places anyway. Again, let's listen to John Bunyan. The fear of God flows from a sound impression that the word of God makes on our souls. For without an impress of the word, there is no fear of God. Hence it is said that God gave to Israel good laws, statutes, and judgments that they might learn them. And in learning them, learn to fear the Lord their God. For as, to, that is, uh, for to the extent a man drinks good doctrine into his soul, to that extent he fears God. If he drinks in much, he fears him greatly. If he drinks in but little, he fears him little. If he drinks it not at all, he fears him not at all. When we sin, including sexual <clears throat> sins, we have become atheists, at least for a moment. Like Adam in the garden after the fall, we think that we can hide ourselves from God. Now, we may not literally think it. Again, if, we're, if we were given a quiz, can you hide from God, we all say no. And yet, every time we sin, we think we can But the Lord has declared in Jeremiah 16, 17... My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. That would be a great memory verse. A God-fearing person lives all of life in the conscious presence of God. Again, I'm coming back and talking to you parents and to you as individuals over the issue of sexual purity. Ultimately, this is the filter. This is the answer. And that doesn't mean the other things shouldn't be done. But if you don't get this one, the other things won't be enough. If you get this one, the other things will help. And so I use this phrase, conscious presence, deliberately. The truth is, we all live in the presence of God all the time, whether we're conscious of it or not. As we read in the text of Psalm 139, David was keenly aware that he is never, ever absent from the presence of God. Neither the height of heavens nor the depth of the earth nor the farthest boundaries of the sea could possibly provide an escape from God. Not even the darkest night. Not even the privacy of our bedroom. Whenever David went, Wherever David went, God was there seeing all that he did. This is an important lesson to teach our children. One that my father taught me. Uh, one that... Uh, Uh, is expressed in the children's catechism question, Can you see God? And the answer is, no. But he can always see me. To help us understand this, the Bible teaches both the immensity, the size, the the, uh, infinitude of God, and the omnipresence of God. These two descriptive terms are related but distinct. As theologian a. a. Hodge points out, the immensity of God is the phrase used to express the fact that God is infinite in his relation to space. That is, that the entire indivisible essence of God, all that God is, all that God is, is at every moment of time contemporaneously present to every point of infinite space. Now that's a, that's a big word. What it means is... God God, and all that he is is with you all the time. And he's with you and you and you and every one of us. He's not divided. We would be divided, right? I, I could give you my attention, but not the rest of you with my attention. Or i have to divide my attention, right? I could give you a little bit. But God, you have all of God's attention. You have all of God and you have all of his attention all the time. Omnipresent characterizes the relation of God to his creatures as they severally or individually occupy their individual space. In other words, wherever you are, he's there in all of his fullness all the time. <laughs> Jeremiah 23-24 speaks to both God's immensity and his omnipresence. It says, I, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I feel, fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Parents, have you taught your children this notion? Of course they need to see it in you too. But I can, I, it's hard for me to imagine a better concept and idea, more important one to teach your children. I can't see God, but he can always see me. As Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and on the good. So you can slip out behind the barn, and God's there. You can close the bedroom door, and God's there. You can get Mom and Dad out of the house. can get God out of the house. He's always there. You can be out in the car. He's there all the time. One characteristic, then, of a God-fearing person is the continual awareness that wherever he goes, God is there. Such a consciousness of God's presence should obviously affect our conduct. Every time we sin, we have to try to get God out of room. Who among us isn't guilty sometimes of disregarding God's constant presence? Put it this way, if your behavior would change, if someone else walked in the room, another person, if you would change your behavior, generally speaking, I can take one or two minor exceptions here, but uh, those would not be simple things. Um, If your behavior would change if I walked in the room, then you, whatever you were doing before I walked in the room, you were unaware of God's presence or you wouldn't have been doing it. And so a God-fearing person should be the same at all times, knowing we live every moment of our lives in his presence. The person who fears God is conscious that God is aware of every minute detail, every mundane activity in his life. Remember, we're going to give an account for every idle word. Such awareness should serve as a check on temptation to sin. It means that because we're aware of his all-seeing eye and all-hearing ear, that we live in a way that pleases Him as He sees what we do and hears what we say. And remember, every our every thought in exact detail. God not only sees and hears what we do or say, He even knows our thoughts. Psalm 139, 2 and 4, you know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thought. Afar off, for there is not a word on my tongue, but the whole Lord, you know it altogether. psalm forty four twenty one also tells us that God knows the secrets of the heart. in jeremiah seventeen ten, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Therefore, to live in God's conscious presence means that we also live in the awareness that God knows our every thought. And all of us have some thoughts that we would be ashamed of. Uh, ...if other people knew them. We entertain thoughts of jealousy and covetousness and envy and resentment and, of course, lust. Thoughts that we'd be ashamed to share with our spouses or our deepest friends are known by God. He knows them in the exact same detail that we think them. As Hebrews 4.13 so forcefully states, "...and there is no creature hidden from his sight... But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And since God knows our every thought in exact detail, the person who fears God is going to seek to control their thought life in the same way uh, we relate our, uh, regulate our conduct. We are going to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So controlling our thought life has two sides to it. We must both deal with negative, sinful thoughts and seek to fill our minds with positive, godly thoughts. Paul's description of godly thought patterns in Philippians 4.8 is a good model. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are of good report, if there is any Virtue, if there is anything worthy of praise, meditate or think on these things. There's another good memory verse. Pack that in. That will help you remember to do those things. Parents, you can make your children memorize churches. They, They can do it. You can do it. Don't make them do it and not you do it. Why don't you do it together? There's a great passage. Paul is obviously setting before us the highest standard of our thought life. And because we need the Lord's help, we will do well to pray with David from Psalm 19:14. Uh, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, what are the essential ingredients to the fear of God? I just want to give a summary here this morning. Three things. First... We have to have correct concepts of God. It's not just any God. It's not just the God of our imagination. It has to be the true God, the real God, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. And so that's going to take a serious study of Scripture because this is where God was pleased to reveal himself. If your concepts of God have come from any other source, then your concept of God is wrong. And being sincerely wrong won't help a bit. If your concept of God is wrong, then your response to God will be wrong. And if your response to God is wrong, then he's not pleased with you. And the God of the Bible uh, reveals himself to be majestic, immense, holy, sovereign, not some formless glob of sentiment that suits our needs. Second, in addition to correct concepts of God, we need a, as we've already mentioned, a pervasive sense. Of the presence of God. And I have to say here, one of my fears is, and I thought to a lot of other pastors, one of my fears is that we have people, some of our children, perhaps some adults, who know all the right answers or a lot of the right answers to pass a test and don't know God, have never had their heart changed by the Lord. Do not love God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, do not have the Holy Spirit at work in their lives, and they're going to grow up in the church and die and perish without God. Now, that sounds very grim, and it is, but the other side of that is the good news, and that is the gospel. That's why it's so essential that we not be presumptuous about these other things. Well, I go to church. And I know the songs, and I lift my hands in all the right places, and I kneel when everybody else kneels, and I take the Lord's Supper every week. What a horrible thing to do all of that and not know God. And when it comes to this issue of sexual purity, one of the reasons we're having so many problems with it is I fear that we don't know God, and we don't have an awareness of His presence. So that's the second thing, a pervasive sense of the presence of God. This is that which spreads throughout the entirety of our lives so that there is no place that we find ourselves without God. Parents, you cannot monitor your kids all the time. Your goal is to teach them self-government under God, so that when you're not there, they know God is there. And that will—and they will govern themselves in light of that. There there should be no circumstances in which we're found but that we know that the majestic, immense, holy and sovereign God is here. Remember, God is not up there or out there somewhere, but he is all that he is right here, right now in our presence. And so if you would not do or say or think what you're about to do or say or think in front of another creature, then stop. The judge of all creatures is present. You can fool your pastor. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your mom and dad. You can fool your teacher. You can fool the boss. But you can't fool God. Be sure your sins will find you out. Third, we need a constraining awareness of our obligations to God. You've got to know who God is. Right concepts. We have to have a awareness of His presence, and we have to have a constraining awareness of our obligations to God. Do you know what God requires of you? Specifically, do you know what God requires of you when it comes to this issue of sexual purity? What will you do when your physical passions cry out, satisfy me, and God says, "Flee youthful lusts? Will you know what God requires day in and day out if trials and temptations face you? You won't if you don't know Scripture, and we won't. Uh, we get our lives in a mess for one of two reasons. We are either ignorant of what God requires of us in a particular situation, or worse, we willfully disobey what we know God requires of us. Those are really the, the two issues. We either don't know because we're ignorant, or we do know and we don't care. The result of an awareness of God's presence is this, Proverbs sixteen six. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Practical effect, Paul said, for in him we live and move and have our being. Genesis 17:1. when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me or live before me and be blameless. Genesis thirty nine seven through nine. It came to pass after these things that his master master's wife, this is Potiphar, his master, uh, Potiphar's wife cast longing or lustful eyes on Joseph, and she said, "Lie with me." But he refused and said to his master's wife, "Look, my master does not know what is with uh, with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand." There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. Notice what he concludes. You got the picture? Look, he put me in charge of everything here. But he didn't, he gave me everything, but he didn't give me his wife. And here's what Joseph says. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knew God was there that day. He had every opportunity to sin, but he was aware of God's presence. The moment a man begins to think he is out of God's sight, he's given himself up to sin in principle already. And so that's the first step in any sin. Now, for this to work, you have to have resolve. If you are to change, if you're to help your family in the pursuit of sexual purity, then it's going to take some resolve. I can't tell you how many times I hear you know I don't you know after the fact, and I think most of those people would be amening what I'm saying right now about the importance to not wait to after the facts. You're going to have to come to a definite, earnest decision. The purpose of coming under conviction, if you're feeling yourself convicted at this point, is to bring about a resolve to change. I'm not going to do that anymore. We're going to make some changes at our house. I'm going to think about this more deeply and thoroughly. Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-9, you know, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. That's the starting place. And for some parents, that's very much where this needs to start, is you need more Bible in you. You don't know what God says. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Of course, you can't if you don't know them. You shall how often talk about them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so this idea that we should bind them for a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes was that they should keep them distinctly in view and carefully attend to them. You know, it's what's before your eyes. If you've got to tie them in a little, that's what the Jews ended up doing, you put this letter, put little scrolls of scripture, let their hair dry, tie them, so they dangle down here. Now you can do that and still not have the Word of God before you, as we saw with some of them. Yeah. Write it on a sign and put it over the door of your house so that as you're walking in, you're reminded that the Word of God rules here. If that's what it takes for the Word of God to permeate your house, Then do it. In other words, the word of God in all its fullness is to be before your eyes all the time. This awareness of God will lead to resolve like Job's. And I want to read this section from Job where he says, and it's a longer, a little longer passage. I have made a covenant with my eyes. I made a deal. I made a contract with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above? In other words, did God give me that young woman to look at? No. What is the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity. Now, this is interesting. He's basically going to pray a, what's called a maledictory, self-maledictory prayer here. He's going to say, I'm making a covenant with my eyes to not do this anymore. And if I do, God, here's what you should do me. That God may know my integrity. If my step is turned from the way, or my heart walk after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, I guess today you'd say if I lurked on the internet, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all of my increase. That is a powerful passage. Psalm 25, 14 and 15. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Psalm 101, 3 and 4. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Now remember... This is not simply a matter of your own resolve. It will require the supernatural help of God. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the people of God, prayer. Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from which comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall not slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Proverbs 4, 20 and 22. My son, give attention to my words and incline your ear to my saying. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and health to all their flesh. Solutions cultivate an awareness of God's presence in your life and the culture of your home. But remember, the gospel is both law and grace brought together to demonstrate the love of the Father. It is neither too harsh nor too lenient. So it's a matter of coming up with a new set of uh, rules. You may need some rules. Probably do. But those rules are also attached to grace and love and affection and desire to, to see your children love the Lord and to see, see you do the same. Pastor Wilson observed, if someone loves the world and refuses to be disenchanted, that's one of the problems I think we've got with some of our young people, is you're very enchanted with the world. Listen to this. If someone loves the world and refuses to be disenchanted, what's the problem? The love of the fathers, not any. The task that parents have is not that of getting their kids to conform to the standard. That part's easy, at least for a time. The task is to get them to love the standard. But learning to love the law of the Father's house is not possible without loving the father of the house. This can't be accomplished with rules, laws, and worldview seminars. Psalm 1611, You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy if your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's not against pleasure, including sexual pleasure. That's a gift of his in the right context. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart I have sought you. See that part right in there in the middle? Oh, let me not wander from your commandment. Your word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. And then let me close with this. He always holds our hand. The fact that we live in the constant presence of God should not only be sobering, it should also be encouraging to us. Note the transition David makes in Psalm 139.7. He acknowledges that he cannot flee from God's presence, but in verse 10 he says, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. David has moved from God's watchful presence to consideration of his protecting presence, We see this picture again in Psalm 73, verse 23, where Asaph wrote, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. And the the writer of Hebrews also picks it up when he says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Despite all the sin that God sees in our lives, He has cleansed us with the blood of Christ and clothed us with his righteousness. Because of this, we can be absolutely honest before God. And we should be, because he knows about us anyway. But too often, because of a sense of guilt, we try in some way to hide our sin from God by either rationalizing about it or seeking in some way to justify it or excuse it. David had learned the freedom of knowing how God knew all about him and still loved him. Because of this, he willingly asked God to search his heart for any offensive way. in him. We too should ask God to search our hearts and go to him with, he knows it anyway, and confess it and say, Lord, I need help. I'm struggling with this temptation or this sin. And I, I need help you've gotten some instruction, you have the word of God, you have the people of God. So you can't just keep it hidden, you can't just hide it away. You've got to go to the sources that God's provided for help. Father, we thank you for your word that tells us the truth, sometimes painfully so, but always points us to the remedy that is in Jesus Christ, that is in the good news of the gospel. Help us in these matters of sexual purity to be found faithful personally and as well as in leading our households. Uh, help us to honor you and give us all a, a fresh uh, vision of you that we might fear you and walk before you and, uh, and live our lives in light of that truth. Bless us now as we prepare for worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.